0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. The weather's finally turned a little cooler. It's kind of nice. I'm glad that you all have joined us in person today. And those of you joining us online, we're glad you're here too. I want to make sure that we do good questions today, so be thinking about this stuff. We've been in this now for a few weeks this year, and so bring some of those questions to bear. We had a number of emails this week, so that's always exciting to have some of those questions, but I do want you to be engaging a little bit so that weird thing you've been wondering, someone else is wondering it too, and so be brave and ask. We're gonna talk about bravery and courage today, and so you can show some courage with your questions too. A reminder that we've got all of these studies and lessons available on podcasts and on our website, so I hope you will take advantage of those. I just got an email this morning from someone who has started all the way back from the beginning with Luke and is listening to these in the car as he drives to to and from work. So it's a great thing for people to do rather than listening to the stuff that makes us anxious and you know, mad. Um, I always turn the radio on and think, I won't be mad today. And then I hear a story, and then I am. And so, you know, Bible study is often better for our hearts and our minds. So let's start with a prayer, and we will get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this day, the gift of our lives. And we ask that you help us to open ourselves up, make space inside our hearts and minds for your spirit to fill us up. Help to empower us, to inspire us, and to help us leave this place changed as we continue to grow closer to you day by day. Be with our friends that we hold in the silence of our hearts, those who need your healing touch, those who feel alone, those who may be near the end of their lives. May your presence lift them up and buoy them. May we be given the courage and strength To help remind them that there is always hope. As we continue this study, may we leave being coming the hands and feet of love that you call us to be as we help extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be looking at Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's going to be the focus of the day, but last week we didn't quite get finished with 1 Samuel 16, so I wanna just close that chapter as we kind of recap and prepare ourselves for what is quite the fun, dynamic chapter. Um, I hope you read ahead because this is one of those good ones. So let's just look back at the very end of chapter 16 And I want to kind of just tie off the idea of David's anointing, not only David's anointing, but also the way in which David comes on the scene as this gentle, interesting, unexpected kind of character. So we know that as David was anointed, it was a surprise to everybody. We talked last week about how Jesse didn't even ask David to come in from outside to be shown to Samuel. Instead, he was left with the sheep. And so David comes in, he's anointed, and now David is being prepared for something quite grand. That kind of preparation brings him into Saul's court. Saul has been troubled with that evil spirit, and David's the one who can calm him by playing the lyre. This is a very interesting dynamic, as I noted at the end of class last week. The way the storyteller tells the story, Saul's losing his mind. He's losing his grip on reality. And David steps in as the one who is calming and centering and helping Saul come back to himself. Now, that is interesting, and we can talk about that dynamic if you're interested. But David is presented here as someone who is a musician, a poet, and this is something that is very consistent throughout the tradition. It is part of our tradition that David wrote the Psalms. Now, David did not write the Psalms. I mean, maybe David wrote a couple, but the idea that David wrote the Psalms, that has been plenty, plenty um, dis, oh, what's the word, um, disproven. Um, They are linguistically very different from one another all the way through, they were probably constructed by lots of different people who had lots of different things to say over time, but the attribution to David is important for us to note, because there is this thread within the tradition that David was a singer, a poet, that musician, and part of his poetry help define his character and the way he related to other people and then will ultimately relate to the entire nation once he unifies them as king. And so I just wanted to kind of name that because it's important for us to know those little nuggets as we go through Bible study. So any questions about David's anointing, his role with Saul, the way that he has been characterized as a musician, any of those things before we jump into chapter 17? Why were the Psalms attributed to David? So David is one of those characters in the Bible that you could put in a category with people like Moses or people like St. Paul as they have such authority that when something is said to have been written by them, people take it more seriously. So it's probably, we probably are all familiar with the epistles. There were classically 14, at least, letters attributed to Paul that he wrote to other people. Well, it has been thoroughly debunked that Paul wrote at most seven of those letters. So there are letters in the New Testament that say, you know, from Paul. Paul did not write those, and we know this because any, I mean, if you watch any detective shows, you know you can look at linguistic structure and the way that words are used and all of that sort of stuff, and you can tell if this letter was written by the same person as this letter. That's something that we are very good at at this point. And so, looking at the structure of those letters, there are some that are clearly consistent with one another and others that are not. That does not mean that the ones that were not written by Paul are not authoritative. But then you might ask, why then would people have said they were written by Paul? Well, if you can imagine you're a good student and you've been trying to learn from Paul and you've been trying to do good things faithfully like Paul, you wanna write a letter to a community that's struggling to follow Jesus in a very particular way and you might sign that letter, Chris, and everyone would say, who the heck is Chris? And why should we listen to him? But instead, you would might sign it your teacher's name, Paul, and then people receive that letter and they think, oh, we really need to hear what he has to say to us. We are all here because we value studying the Bible. The Bible is, in the end, not so complicated. There are parts that are a little weird, but on the whole, The Bible is pretty straightforward, not that complicated, but we wish for it to be very complicated because otherwise we actually have to do what it says. And that's not really what any of us want to do. Um, So I saw a comic the other day where it said, you know, there's a man that says, I guess you're supposed to think it's Jesus, although I don't think maybe that was intended. And it said, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the person responded, well, that's socialism, and that's a redistribution of wealth. And the guy said, well, but it says right here, and he's holding up a Bible, and someone else comes and says, well, why are you looking at that thing? And I think, well, there is a sense in which it's kind of clear but we don't really want to do it, so we make it complicated, and we think, well, they must have said something else, or, well, over here it said this, not quite that, and so maybe that means it didn't really mean what it said, and then that's called theology. And so (laughs) we are, I think that in a similar sense, when people put another person's name on a thing, someone that people really respected, then it gets a lot more weight in reception. And so I think that the Psalms were attributed to David because David was very important. And so the Psalms have a lot of wisdom in them, and if they were written by Sandra, people would say, who's that? But if they're written by David, then people will actually sit with them and listen to them and let them kind of seep into their bones and allow it to change them because David meant something. And the rest of us are kind of just nice people. And he was a musician. And he was a musician. And so we tell the story in that way. I mean, it is not unsensible that David would have written songs. Psalm really means song. And so when we sing, do you know, I had the funniest moment the other day. I was with the youth confirmation class and they've been given a journal where they are meant to reflect on the readings from each Sunday. And as you know, in the lectionary, there is a thing called a lectionary, I should not say as you know, there's a thing called a lectionary, that's a rotation of readings that is in a three year cycle. So every three years, we read a lot of scripture in our Sunday worship services, not the whole thing. There are plenty of sections of the Bible that are not included, but a lot of it is included. And every Sunday, there are four readings identified. Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, which is essentially non-gospel New Testament, and then gospel. So always those four. And they are meant to relate to each other in some way. But the problem for most people is that they don't, they're not explicit in their relationship. And so part of what preachers do is preachers are meant to sit and marinate in those four lessons to try and glean something better than any one of those. So it's meant to be, you know, the sum of the part, it, the sum is greater, what is the thing? The total is greater than the sum of the parts? There it is. Um, and so. What was interesting about the question from the Confirmation class is why are these Scripture passages grouped together? And when I said, it's because it grounds our worship each week, they said, but we don't read all of these each week. And I said, well, yes, occasionally, like at the nine o'clock service in the church, we don't always do the New Testament lesson that is non-gospel. And they said, yeah, but what about this one? And they pointed to the psalm. I said, well, we do the psalm every week. When?" and i said it's sung and it was like light bulb over their head and they were like that's what the choir's singing yes and so you know that there you go um, things i think are not that complicated it's like years and years and years and someone's like oh it's the song yes they're not just singing whatever they picked this week it is the psalm. And then it's like there was one sweet woman who came to me afterwards. The gospel lesson was Jesus calming the storm. And so, of course, that's a dramatic, you know, big, big storm. Everyone's scared. Jesus calms the storm and it gets calm. Okay. So right after the gospel lesson, before I preached, the, our, one of our organists kind of went, Bruh! I mean, it was just like all this other stuff. And then it slowly kind of got soft and then it ended in this gentle way where one woman thought that was just the most horrible thing she'd ever heard in church. And so she came to me afterwards and said, what was that organist doing after the gospel lesson? And I said, I think they were doing the storm that was calmed by Jesus. And you should have seen her eyes got big. Like it had never occurred to her that maybe we actually look at things like the scripture passage and then plan accordingly. Um, you know, so I, I love it when people have those like epiphany moments where things like just kind of work. So yes, um, the Psalms, they're songs. David was a musician. And so the attribution to him makes good sense. It's just not something we should hold really tightly because he probably did not write most of them. All right. Any other follow-up questions? All right, then let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 17. There are three sections for chapter 17. You've got Goliath is introduced. Then you've got David's claim of God's presence, and then you've got the battle. And this is great stuff. So before we really get in, I want to say we know, we all think we know this story. This is one of those stories where if you were to ask almost anyone, they would be able to tell you the basics. David and Goliath is one of those images, metaphors, stories that shape everyone everywhere. I have to think, every person in this room, every person watching online has referenced the David and Goliath story in a very specific way at least once in their life, if not dozens and dozens of times. This is one of those stories that just gets way beyond the Bible and becomes an image for us as human people. We think we know the story, and so I want us to put down the story that we would tell off the top of our heads, and let's really kind of pull apart the language here and hopefully discover something that we didn't know was there. So, basics of the story. Goliath is a big guy. David is a small guy. The small guy beats the big guy, yay. Okay, there's chapter 17. That's the summary. (laughs) let's start at the beginning with the introduction of Goliath. So chapter 17, verse 1. I'm, I'm pretty much going to read this entire chapter today because it's just too good to skip. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Socah. Verse 2. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits. And so then their next few verses explain just how big he really is. Jump to verse eight. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. And the Philistine said, today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So we'll stop there. Goliath comes out and sets the stage for what is called champion warfare. This is a classic way of doing battle in the ancient world. Think about Achilles and Hector at Troy. We have seen this over and over and over again in ancient epic poems and other kinds of mythology stories where rather than two entire armies just crashing into each other on the battlefield, perhaps it is in everyone's best interest to send a single champion out into the battlefield. They fight each other as representative of both armies, and whoever prevails wins. The end. That does not always happen quite as easily as that, but in the ancient world, this was something that was relatively common. Now, the Philistines have been a problem for the Israelites for generations. Remember that when Joshua brought the Israelites across the Jordan River into Canaan, there were lots of people who already lived there. Lots of different tribes, lots of different groups. Many of them trace their lineage back to the Semitic peoples. They branched off from Abraham, perhaps through Esau and others. And so these are not, they're like distant cousins. So they're not totally different from the Israelites, but they are unrelated in their cultural identity because Israel was removed from that area for 400 plus years, both in Egypt and the wilderness. So by the time they get back, they've developed a totally different identity than the different tribal groups that were in Canaan. The Philistines are there, and the Philistines are constantly like a thorn in their side. We've heard reference to the Philistines multiple times. Saul's story earlier on in 1 Samuel is often about the way that Saul goes and battles the Philistines, and so the Philistines coming to try and take land from the Israelites is nothing new. But for the first time, at least in the scripture story, we have this champion warfare set up such that Goliath walks out, and the whole six cubits business is basically like 10 feet tall. So was he really 10 feet tall? Probably not. Was he perhaps a, an unusually oddly large person? Probably. We have historic record of essentially giant people who, for any number of reasons, have genetic... Um, are outside genetic norms that create in them huge characteristics. Those people, we know at least, are also people who suffer a lot of unfortunate physical maladies. Um, their organs can't keep up with the size of their bodies and all of those sorts of things, their glandular issues and whatever. And so Goliath could have been someone like that. So I don't want to dismiss that he was probably a very large person but I also don't think we need to make him 10 feet tall. So anyway, big, big person. He set up this champion warfare and all of Israel was afraid. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That idea is most important for us before we go on to the next section. Fear had gripped the Israelites. And that's what David is about to flip upside down. So any questions about the way this scene is set before we go into David's arrival? Okay, here we go. Let's look at verse 17. We'll start there. And I'm going to read a whole long bit here because it's important. We've set the scene with Goliath and Israelites being afraid, and then into the scene comes David. Verse 17. Jesse said to his son David, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See how your brothers fare and bring some token from them. So essentially what's happening here is David's back with Jesse. Jesse sent some of his boys to the battlefield. They've been there for 40 plus days. Really 40 days? No, but 40 is that sacred number. So they've been there a period of time that is somehow sacred because what is hinting... Stop. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk that much, but we heard that they had been on the field for 40 days. 40 days is not meant to be a literal number. When we hear numbers like 40, or 12, or three, or seven, or six, or other things like that, those numbers are not meant to be literal. Those numbers are meant to tell us that something good or bad is about to happen. So they've been on the field for 40 days. So the way the storyteller is telling the story, something good is about to happen, and the good that the storyteller is using here is David's arrival. So we should perk up, 40 days is enough time to say, okay, something good's gonna happen. What is the good thing? It's whatever David's bringing to the table. That's the good thing. And so as careful readers of the Bible, we see a number like 40, don't think actual number. Think the implication of the storyteller that something's about to change for the better. So now we'll jump back into verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Now isn't that interesting? Didn't we just have a champion warfare thing set up here with Goliath? But apparently they're also fighting. That's storyteller not having a good editor. Verse 21. (laughs) Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Verse 24. All the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him, and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Um, they literally just said it out loud, but here we go. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in this way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Verse 28. His eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, Why have you come down? with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. How great is that line from the little brother? You know, the older brother's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, who me? what would I do? What have I done? David turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way and the people answered him again as before. So pause, David is showing up and David hears Goliath challenge Israel. Now all of Israel before this has heard Goliath's challenges and then they are afraid. David comes down with some cheese and some grain and just checking in on his brothers and he hears Goliath and he sees people run away and he says, wait a minute, what are y'all doing? Why are you not seeing this man for who he is, someone who is challenging God himself? But when David begins to ask those questions, the other people, especially his older brothers, start to get annoyed with him. Jump back in, verse 31. When the words David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. All right, now we'll stop, and let's chat about this for a minute. This story is so well told I mean, it's just awesome. And what has been set up here is that everyone's afraid of Goliath, except the little boy. The little boy comes out and is almost doesn't even know any better, except he's a lot more clever than we might give him credit for. There is this sense of he's young and naive and he's just faithful that God's going to be there, but it's not quite that simple. David leans into a really strong position here. It's sort of like what I mentioned last week. We only doubt God when we forget what he's already done. This is really what David brings to the table. David is clear. He understands what God has done. And so why wouldn't God continue to do it? He brings that kind of innocent faithfulness to the scene. Now, yes, he is a small boy and he is no soldier, but he is confident for two important reasons, and I want us to really play with this idea for a few minutes. The first, David knows himself. David knows how to handle himself in the world. David is very keen on his own gifts. He's not just walking blindly into this battle and saying, I'll fight, having no experience fighting. David is a fighter he shows that he has defeated lions and bears and he has been a shepherd. And I don't know when the last time was we discussed this in here, but we often think of shepherds as these docile, sweet people. No, no, no. Shepherds were fierce because they often were by themselves out in the wilderness, surrounded by a whole bunch of dinners. And so they've got all the sheep and they've got all the goats And all the wolves and the lions and the bears, all they see is food. And the only thing between them and dinner is the shepherd. Shepherds were not people who just laid out under the stars. They defended the sheep. So they were scrappy, they were fierce, they were fighters. We hear Jesus talk about being the good shepherd. We hear Jesus talk about being the gate, the shepherd's gate. What that actually means is that at night, shepherds would take their sheep somewhere where they were kind of defended on one side. So that could have been a nook or some sort of carving in a rock against a mountainside. It could also be a big tree, and there would be some kind of wall of sorts around. But of course, the sheep or the goats or whomever, whatever, had to get in and out of the pen that was set up for them in the evenings. And so there was a doorway and the shepherd would actually lay down in the doorway so that if anything tried to come and get the sheep, the shepherd would be woken and defend them. Jesus talks about that's who he is for us. We are the sheep, and he lays down in the gate. He is the gate. So David comes to this moment with a whole lot of confidence and skill. Now, yes, he's not a soldier, but he is a fighter. And so it's important for us to recognize David knows himself. David knows his skills, his abilities, his capacity, his gifts, and so when he is called upon to answer with his own giftedness, he is confident that he can do something good, but he's not egotistical. He doesn't come at this moment Understanding it as just I, small person, can beat him, big person, all by myself. He comes with a faithfulness and a confidence that God will be with him. David trusts that God's going to be there in that moment and actually back him up in a very real way. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is anchoring his response here in the sense of pride that God should not be insulted. This Philistine comes here, this pagan comes here, and person is not, sorry, that distracted me. There we go, okay. David comes at this moment and he is very aware that God is going to be present with them. They have to bring some of their own gifts to the table but God also meets them in that moment. So the important thing for us to understand here is that David is not blindly running into this fight as if he thinks God will do everything. David's kind of meeting God halfway. This is really important for us because often when I hear people speak of being frustrated with or disappointed with God in some way, it's often because they expect God to do the whole thing. Why didn't God do X? Or why isn't God doing Y? As if God should just come down and take care of that. Nope. What the Bible shows us over and over and over again is we have to bring to bear our gifts We have to kind of go out halfway. God will meet us, absolutely. But God's not doing this for us. There's this great song that I love where it said, I'm looking at the world and I'm seeing all these terrible things happen and I'm wondering, where are you, God? Why don't you send someone to go and make things better? And the response I get back is, God sent me. We can very much in our own kind of victimhood look at things around us as if God cares or doesn't care, or God is acting or not acting. And we forget we are actors too. And we are not meant to be blind, naive, kind of idiotic actors. We have all been given gifts. Some of us could be fighters like this. Some of us could be speakers. Some of us could be workers. Some of us could be creative. Some of us can be analytical. Some of us can be caring. Some of us can be very logical. Whatever that is, we all have these gifts, and we're not called to use our gifts all the time in every situation. My God, if we could all figure that out, it would be so nice. I can't tell you how many times people wanna use their gifts, and I think, not now. (laughs) Ha ha ha. That took you a minute, didn't it? Yeah. We all know that person. We're like, man, thank you so much for your faithfulness. (laughs) Um, But we all have gifts that at the right time can be used and not on our own. We're not by ourselves. We're not just hung out on the line. God meets us there. And so what is very critical for us to understand here is this is not a human fighting a human and David just outsmarts him. That's not the best of this story. The much better way to understand this story is David walks into this situation knowing himself, knowing his gifts, seeing that everyone is really too afraid for their own good because God has been very faithful many, many times, and there is nothing that says God would not be faithful again with David in this moment. All right. Thoughts? Questions about that? Yes, sir. It's a great, that's a great question. So if we're actually just reading the story straight through, what just happened in the previous chapter? David was anointed as the next king by Samuel in front of his brothers and his father. Now we get to chapter 17, and it's kind of as if that didn't happen. The question is whether or not the brothers knew about David's anointing in this moment, whether or not Jesse sent David here kind of with some political savvy, like here's David's chance to get a little attention and to earn some respect from the people. That is all totally possible. We don't see any indication of that in chapter 17. There is nothing that says Jesse knows and he is sending David in order to get some fame, that Eliab knows, and he's somehow frustrated that David's seizing the attention or anything like that. All we see here is a story that sounds like a father and his sons are going off into a battlefield and that sort of stuff. It's relatively clean. So then we should ask, is that just the way the storyteller tells the story, or is there something more going on here? The way I read that is something very similar to all of the first chapters of 1 Samuel around Saul, which is you had multiple stories about Saul that were essentially just pushed together. And they didn't happen in chronological order. They were not in sequence the way that we read them. Instead, they were all probably good, maybe true stories that happened independently, that were remembered and collected, and then the story writer just put them down on paper. One of the things that we, a written story has certain limits. You've all watched movies or TV shows where there might be four, six, 12 different storylines all happening at the same time and you spend a few minutes in this storyline, and a few minutes in this storyline, and a few minutes in this storyline, and you might spend an hour watching one TV show where it's all about the very same day, but you've seen eight different storylines about people doing things in different places all on that one day. That can be done visually on a screen a whole lot easier than that can be done in writing on a page. Is it possible that these stories are a little out of order? I mean, I think if you were to go back and put David and Goliath before the anointing, would that work a little better? Probably not, because David would have certainly been very famous, and Samuel would have not shown up at Jesse's house, and Jesse not brought in the guy who killed Goliath to walk in front of Samuel. So I think these really are two separate stories that are both important and good for us to know, they complement one another, but they can't be put in chronological or sequential order the way that we would read them from chapter 16 to chapter 17. Another way of thinking about this is first two chapters of Genesis, you get two very different creation stories. It's not that God created the world one way and then like went nah and wiped it and then created the world a different way. That's not how that works. It's much more about both stories say something about the way God works in the world. No one of them says everything. And so I think what you see here are a few, and we're gonna get another one, where David's origin story, so to speak, has been maintained in multiple different ways. Because again, this was not written for hundreds of years. So David had been dead, long dead, for centuries before this story was actually written in this form. And so it's very possible that multiple of these good origin stories of David were maintained and then finally written down and they just had to put one before the other, even though chronologically speaking, it probably didn't happen quite that way. Other questions or comments? Yeah, so for the good of the stream, um, the sort of learning here is to remember, um, as you put it, to whom we belong. Um, It's not, you know, I remember someone put it to me one way where it's more important that you know whose you are, not who you are, and that that kind of undergirds and supports our identity at all times. And there are certainly moments in Scripture when the human person of the story doesn't even ask for help. And yet God delivers. Um, I I did a podcast on that, I think a few weeks ago, where, well, you know, we record our podcast like a couple months beforehand. So who knows? You might hear it next week. I don't know. Um, So there's the story of Jesus bringing two people back to life. One is the centurion's daughter where you've got, you know, she dies, and he says, had you been here? And then Jesus comes in and raises her back to life. Well, then immediately following that, you get the story where Jesus is just walking by a funeral procession, and he goes over to the woman who is widowed, and it was her only son. And that's important in the story because essentially Jesus sees a vulnerable woman who would now essentially have no one to take care of her in their social system walks over and just raises the guy back to life. Now, no one asked him. In the first, he was asked to save her. In the second, Jesus just walked up, saw a need, raised the guy back to life. It is an interesting question to ask us, how does God function with us? Sometimes, apparently God functions when we ask. Sometimes, God functions even though we don't ask. It is a, a, <laughs> it is a dynamic way of understanding how God works in the world, but for us, we should certainly anchor ourselves in the truth that God's present with us always, and that whether we ask or not, God's with us. I go back again and again to that dumb footprints thing that was everywhere in the 80s, where you, know, you see the one set of footprints on the beach Why'd you leave me when my, you know, life got, sorry, I shouldn't make fun of it. It's really good. Um, But you see two sets of footprints, then one set of footprints. Why'd you leave me when time got hard? I didn't leave you. That's when I carried you. And I remember thinking, God, it's so cheesy. It is the cheesiest. And yet it's really good. It's good. It became kind of cliche for a reason. Um, Okay. Other comments or thoughts? Yeah, spiritual giftedness is really important. Part of what we try to encourage here, same as in the first century with Paul, is the idea that we've all been given gifts. No one of us has all the gifts. Everyone has something that they can contribute. And whether that's, I'm not even gonna do that, It could be in the quiet of your home, it could be way out in front and loud and everything in between. Everyone has gifts. And so understanding your own gifts takes work. Part of discernment is around who we actually are because all of us as we grow up are, we have expectations put on us to be a certain way or to be able to do certain things, or to act in certain ways, that are not consistent with our unique giftedness. Now, no one's trying to be mean or anything, but there is a sense that we can get confused about who we are meant to be because the world has put all of these expectations on top of us. Part of growing up, so to speak, and maturing is being able to differentiate between what the world told you you should be and should do and who you actually are and allowing yourself to be loved for who you are and then used for who you are. So that it's not just about you feeling satisfied with yourself, that's not good enough. You've got to figure out who you are and then you've got to go put that to work. And so the people who who talk about You know, finding themselves. I'm like, good luck. I hope you find yourself. But once you find yourself, get to work because it's not all about you. And our culture tells us that we're supposed to go treat ourselves, you know, hashtag blessed and all that crap. And what we really need to do is figure ourselves out and then move on because God is not interested in us only stopping with we know ourselves. Yeah, know yourself, and then know how you can be useful. We are all called to be useful. And I, someone said, it puts a lot of pressure on me for you to say that we have to go do something. <laughs> sorry. Um, I mean, I, I think she may have wanted me to say, don't, don't feel the pressure to do something. And I just said, sorry, um, because, you know, I look at the Bible and that's it. We're always called to do something. And so don't stop with you love yourself and you like yourself and you know who you are. I'm so glad for all of those things. Now, go do something about it. That's really where God meets us, is when we take action. All right, any other comments or questions? Because it's time for the battle. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Verse 41, time for the fight. The Philistine came, I'm sorry, the Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day, The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The troops of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. The Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And we'll stop there. Oh, that's good stuff. We don't often tell our children the part about David cutting off Goliath's head, right? We tend to say, like, David goes running out and he slings the stone and it hits. We always say it hits Goliath in the forehead as if that's good enough. Um, But you get this, it sank into his forehead. I mean, you're talking about a force, a blunt force trauma here that would have essentially made him brain dead. And he falls to the ground, but that's not good enough. David goes and pulls Goliath's sword and cuts off his head and then carries his head around. And he, he carries his head around a few different places where we might skip that part. Um, but it's good stuff here. And we get as if the storyteller thought you might have missed the point of this story up to, this, up to now. He says, David said to the Philistine, you come with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. It is so clear that what is really happening on this field of battle is it is Israel's God versus the Philistine's God. We even have the Philistine, Goliath, cursing David by his gods. So they tee this up beautifully, and David just pops right in the forehead, and he's dead. And then I love that as soon as he dies, all the Philistines flee, and then the Israelites are all of a sudden, they're brave now. Now that Goliath's dead, they're off. Boom. And they go chase them down, and they go and they plunder their camp. It's silly. But David has actually shown the Israelites who God really is, how God works how God uses their own gifts and their own skills to be glorified. And remember, and we've talked about this over the years many times, the idea of monotheism, as we might actually lay it out, is not really what is happening here. For most of human history, it's all about a battle of the gods that is played out on earth. We see that, any of us that studied Roman or Greek mythology back in school, we know that all of the soap opera drama of those gods is meant to reflect all of the soap opera drama of the people on the earth. Same thing here, where the Philistines have their gods, Israel has their God, and it's really a battle of the gods. Whose God is better? And so David goes out to fight Goliath, very confident, that the God of Israel is stronger than the gods of the Philistines. That is really what's happening here in the story. Now, we can take that idea and apply it to the way that we understand the world. And I think I've said this in here before, but it bears repeating. I do a lot of interfaith work, and I'm regularly doing interfaith conversations with other Abrahamic traditions, um, rabbis and imams. And one of the questions we get, the first question we get every single time we have an interfaith conversation is, do you pray to the same God? And our response is always, of course we do. There's only one. But the question reveals this sense that we still kind of think they're God, our God. Well, that's not it, folks. That's, there's just God. Now, do people pray differently than us? Sure. And if people pray differently than us, but they're trying to pray to God, do you really think God cares the words that they're using? No. God wants us, and all of us, not just us in this room, all the people. And so if someone does it to the best of their ability on a particular day and time, God's going to receive it. And so no matter who's praying, God's welcoming that kind of desire to connect. For us reading this story now, David is showing the rest of Israel just how faithful they can be. And what is important is that this now goes from David is anointed in private by Samuel to now David's the guy, right? When I mean, we talk about like David's the man, he just killed Goliath. Everybody knows who he is now. He is no longer the random shepherd boy who doesn't get walked through the house in front of Samuel. Now he's the guy everybody knows. Saul then, think of poor Saul. Saul is old. Saul was afraid. Saul, for 40 days, didn't do anything to overcome Goliath. And here, young David walks on the scene and in seemingly two minutes, runs out into the field, slings a rock, Goliath's dead, and then the Israelite army charges. Saul, Saul's not going to like that kid. Because in a sense, he might feel really good right now because the Philistines are in retreat. But in just a moment, Saul's going to pivot, and he's gonna realize the champion of the day is not the king. The champion of the day is this kid. And so Saul is going to begin to feel the sort of rage. He's gonna begin to feel the jealousy, and he's gonna let all of that begin to seep into his bones. We already know he's like borderline losing his mind. Now he's going to let that green jealousy really poison him even more, and that's going to color the entire rest of the story between Saul and David before David is finally king, and it kind of roots itself right here. Thoughts or questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. So the question is about why Saul sought for David to wear his armor, but then David didn't wear the armor. We skipped over that portion. Um, we read all the way through verse 37. So there's a couple of verses in there. Um, oh, did I? No, no, I, I skipped it. Um, where Saul gives David his armor, essentially because it makes no sense that someone would go fight in this sort of champion warfare without armor. I mean, why would you put yourself at a, in a detriment? Um, I also think that there is a, probably a sense in there that Saul knew he wasn't going to be the champion. And so he had to somehow validate or approve David going out and fighting for him. So in a sense, David was Saul's champion. David was not just stepping out to be his own champion, Saul was approving of David being the champion. So that if David goes out and dies, well, that was dumb of him. If David goes out and wins, Saul, in a sense, made that happen. That's just, I think, royalty 101. What is interesting is that David rejects Saul's armor. And the way that the story is told, David, I mean, it's kind of great. David puts on Saul's armor, and then it, it it's like he can't walk in it. Um, it's, it's great, I didn't read those, that portion. Um, but you can imagine, like, you know, a little girl putting on their mom's dress and heels, and they just can't walk because it's dragging on the ground and the shoes don't fit. I mean, that's really what it is. David's still small. I mean, he's obviously not a child, but he is probably a teenager, and so, you know, a, like a skinny 15 year old boy, even though they might be the same height as an adult, can't wear like a man's armor who is a grown man of probably 50 plus years old. They just have the same size yet. They haven't grown into their bodies enough. And so David gives that armor back and goes out in just his shepherd clothes to take care. And I have to think that David knew his skill I don't think David thought for a moment that he was going to go face off spear to spear with Goliath. That was not gonna happen. David was too clever for that. He goes and picks those five stones, puts them in his bag. That's how he knows he's going to win. So he was never gonna get close enough to to Goliath to need armor because that was not the way he was gonna fight. Other questions or thoughts? I want to make note that on October 26th, in the year of our Lord, I finished a few minutes early. That never happens. I'm glad to see you all today, and I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll see you next week. Bye.